Have a seat if you would. So last week uh, we heard Ben's story, and this week we're going to hear Rebecca's story. And before we hear, uh, see the video of Rebecca telling her story, I wanted to say a couple of things. Uh, Ben's story I've, I've likened to a car accident, a really, really bad car accident. And it's like that in that as Ben is driving his car and has this really, really bad accident, if you were to come upon a really, really bad accident, you would immediately grab your cell phone, you would immediately call 911, and you would immediately run to him for help. What can I do? Is there something bleeding that I can help to stop? Can I shake you? Can I make you conscious? You would you'd be very focused on trying to help to save his life. Uh, Rebecca, on the other hand, her story is a, probably a lot more like ours in that it's a slow leak in the cabin of her car of carbon monoxide. Rebecca has absolutely no idea that she's being poisoned and will eventually lead in her death. If you were driving alongside of Rebecca and the car was leaking carbon monoxide into her life, you would have absolutely no idea it was happening. You'd have absolutely no idea that Rebecca was on her way to death. You wouldn't grab your cell phone and call 911. You wouldn't run to her side. You wouldn't shake her into consciousness. You wouldn't try to stop the bleeding. Another thing is true is if you're driving down the street and you see a really bad car accident, what do we do? Every one of us, we look at it. We pay close attention to it. If you're driving down the street and you just see somebody driving down the highway in their car, pay no attention to it. And that is where the danger lies. We're going to read two stories in Scripture this morning, and both of those stories in Scripture end with the good person, the religious person, the one sitting in the carbon monoxide car outside of the Father's love. It's dangerous. And I know that there have been conversations that have happened even after last week and throughout this week talking about Ben's story and, man, I wish I had something like Ben's story. Man, I wish this was true about me. Maybe I should go and do some bad stuff so that I can have a great story. Lie. There's not one of us that's sitting in this room this morning without the love of Christ that's not headed for death. Just because Ben has sat in a prison, just because Ben has sat through alcoholism, just because Ben has had these difficulties in family situations, those are sensational things. We are all headed towards death apart from Christ. And that's what I want to yell at us today. And, and burn it into our hearts. This morning, we're telling the story of Rebecca Klein, the good girl that we can probably relate to. Let's hear her story. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. 
My dad is a pastor and my mom um, is a music minister. And so I spent a lot of time in the church. Um, I grew up um, knowing who God was and who Jesus was, um, being told that I was a sinner and needed a savior. the age of seven um, in vacation Bible school one summer um, I went forward and prayed a prayer of salvation and um, kind of just was really the model maybe of what um, the perfect child looked like I made what I thought was all the right decisions and um, what a Christian would do. My older sister was kind of the opposite of that, probably more like um, the younger brother and um, the prodigal son. And um, I think that kind of... Um, led into me being more influenced by making those choices and having um, people tell me that I was such a good child or such a good Christian and um, that kind of started making me feel good about myself in a sense and um, so from pretty young I think I learned to kind of find my salvation and keeping a checklist of Christian things that I um, should and shouldn't do, whether it's reading the Bible or saying a prayer or um, not using the Lord's name in vain or not lying or whatever it may be. Um, I kind of found salvation in that and in myself, I guess. In the summer of 08, um, I served at Super Summer, which is where I met um, Rick and Jen. I was a small group leader on Rick's team. He had actually preached the same sermon. That was probably my fourth or fifth time hearing it. Um, he was preaching about core sins in our lives and um, um, identifying those and needing to seek redemption on those. Because for so much of my life, when I would pray, I'd be like, okay, now I'm supposed to ask for forgiveness. And I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't really think I lied or today. And I just really didn't understand like what to ask forgiveness for. And so I was really trying to look at myself and figure out like what my core sins were, like what um, what I was dealing with. And so I wrote some things down and then I shared it with my girls. And I just remember that being as much for me as it was for them. And um, then we went into every morning we would have this morning worship session and it's kind of just more fun and um, they would sing kind of goofy songs with hand motions. And I was sitting in the back by myself because I was just reflecting on all of this and um, kind of understanding my sin for the first time. And 
And it's just like in that moment, a light came on and I just understood that I was this horribly sinful person, like at my core, just um, self-righteousness and pride and selfishness. And, um, but at the same time, God is so merciful and gracious and he loves me and accepts me just like I am, just that screwed up. The truth is, if I'm honest with myself and everyone, and it's a sad and sickening thought that I spend most of my life not, well, I didn't love Jesus and I didn't love God and I loved myself and I loved my um, Christianity and my morals and my church and the way, um, I guess, feeling like I, I don't know, I just, I loved myself. Just the fact that I, I do now have a um, intimate relationship with Christ is um, his grace on display. The fact that he brought this broken, self-righteous person who didn't even love God um, full circle into an intimate relationship with him. And just him drawing me into him and reminding me that I'm this sinful person who um, doesn't deserve this grace, but that he gives it to me anyway. That verse that uh, concludes up there is a verse you probably are all familiar with. I'm going to read it to us. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I think religious arrogance has robbed that verse and, and convinced us all that we use that verse to refute Islam or we use that verse to, to refute pantheism or that you've probably heard that there's this great mountain and at the top of the mountain is God and we can take any path that we want to to get up there. Hinduism, Mormonism, Judaism, Christianity, all those things. And we've robbed this verse of its real meaning to use it only in that context. But Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And this morning, we're going to read two teachings of Christ where that is absolutely on display. And we have seen it on display. There is no amount of goodness that's within you that can get you to God. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And the first words you saw in that video I want to bring back to us. Today and every day, you will be tempted to trust in something other than Jesus. Today and every day, you will be tempted to trust in something other than Jesus. And that is the message this morning. Don't. It leads to death. And that's the message of Rebecca's life. 
And it's probably the message of a big percentage of us. Do you know that your being here this morning will not earn you a thing with God? We gathered about eight of us back there this morning to pray in a religious activity. It gained no favor with God. There is no other way, no other thing to trust in aside from Christ. Everything else that's said and done this morning is in support of that. Because I I want us to to focus in this morning on the depth of our sin. And she said that she heard the same message that I preached like four or five times. I preached it to the, to the small group leaders like her. I preached it to the, the summer missionaries. I preached it like five times in a matter of six weeks. I preached it to us like three and a half years ago. And a lot of that's going to seep in this morning. A lot of that is rooted in this desperate need that we have to repent. Uh, so flip to, to Luke chapter 15, if you would. If you don't have a, a Bible, we have some in the back, and if you don't have a Bible and don't feel like going back there and getting one, the stuff's going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, this is the second half of the prodigal son story. The younger brother in this story is Ben. His story is sensational and fascinating and shows up on daytime talk shows. Uh, Rebecca's story is the older brother, who is not nearly as fascinating and, in fact, kind of boring, and nobody talks about it, which is why it's so dangerous. I'm starting in verse 25 of Luke 15. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. I want to stop for a second and, 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 and point your attention to this. If you are going to your house, and there's an obvious party going on in your house, are you going to wait outside and call somebody over and ask what's going on? Probably not. You're probably going to run there. The first sign of skepticism in the heart of this guy, of this older brother. He's skeptical, so he calls the servant to him. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. Listen to verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out. There's so much beauty in this verse that I want to to stop and take a moment to recognize. He was angry and refused to go in. Religious people will rest in this idea, this notion of comparison. I said before we started, before we saw the video, that we, I had heard conversations of comparison happening. And I hope you think I'm talking about you. Because most likely I am. 
We compare ourselves all the time. And there is not a person in here that has not committed sin that's worthy of death. You don't need to compare yourself to anybody. Comparison leads to anger and leads to you outside of the party. God wants to throw you a party, wants to to be engaged with you completely and fully. When we rest and trust in self, we willingly go outside of the party. Back to verse 28 and see the beauty of this. Even in his anger, even in his sin, even in his willingness to stay outside of the party, even in his comparison nature, his father came out. Here's the danger of a a sermon and a message like this. Is that my my prayer this whole week has been that that each and every one would come to grips with the depth of their, their own personal sin. Rebecca in the video called them core sins. We all have them. And I'm going to hopefully lead us to a place where we connect with those this morning. But the danger of a message like this is we only come to grips with our sin and don't come to grips with the second half of verse 28. The Father came out. The Father came out. He's pursuing you in the midst of your self-righteousness. God is pursuing you. I sat over there and nearly started crying as I, I saw and relived this thing that we, we had walked through with Rebecca. And, and the beautiful part is that the father comes out. He chased after the younger son in a few verses before this, and now he's coming out to connect with the older son. No matter where you find yourself, to the left or to the right, the father is chasing you. And as we connect with our sin, take solace that the Father is coming out. But then, verse 29, he answered his Father, and he lays out all the stuff that he's talked about. In the story, Rebecca told, this is, I didn't lie. I didn't take the Lord's name in vain. I prayed today. I read my Bible today. All those things, checklist of things that I've done. Now, God, you owe me something. Now, Father, you owe me something. But he answered his Father, look, these many years I've served you. He's comparing, he's comparing himself to his brother. I never disobeyed your command. So many times when we compare ourselves or when we list our, our attributes, we're liars. I never disobeyed your command. Lie. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who's devoured property of, with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? I pray that th- these, are, these are sensational things. And I don't know that we would ever come to God. Maybe we would. I don't know. I don't know your heart. And, and yell at God that, why, what, what's, where's mine? But in some way, that seeps into our consciousness. Verse 31. And... He said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. Second half of the gospel is right there. Son, you're always with me. 
All that is mine is yours. Take a deep breath of that. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now is found. You want to know the thing that scares me to death about this verse, this chunk of verses. We never ever hear what happens to the older brother. The last place we see the older brother is comparing and angry and outside of the party. That ought to freak you out. We're sitting in church, religious people, engaged in a religious activity. The older brother, we never hear what's going on in his life. And here's the thing that I want to draw our attention to. Religious people never intend to place themselves at odds with God. But that's the result. Do you think the older brother woke up this morning and said, how can I get outside of my father's provision? How can I run away from him? Religious people never wake up and decide, you know what? I don't want God anymore. I'm going to live outside of God now. But self-trust, self-righteousness leads us there. Flip over a few chapters to Luke 18. See it happen again. Starting in verse 9. Jesus talking again. Verse 9 is a sermon in itself. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is what Jesus says to those who trust in themselves. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Before we get into this, I want to give some background to what a tax collector is. We do ourselves a disservice by singing Little songs about Zacchaeus being a wee little man, and he climbed upon a sycamore tree, and I'll spare you the song, but you know what I'm talking about? A wee little man was he, right? And we convince ourselves that what happened there, who, who Zacchaeus was, he was a short little guy who, who was supposed to tax people, and instead of taking the 25 that he was supposed to take, he took 50, and he kept 25 for himself. That's what we decide a tax collector is. But here's what a tax collector really was. Rome ruled the day, and they ruled this massive land of people. So what they did, they they didn't have an army big enough to rule everything. So what they did is they would hire mercenaries to come in and police. And to hire mercenaries, you need a lot of money. So they would go into a place, find a traitor among a group of people, and say, you are our tax collector. So what, they, what this is, is someone, a Jewish person, who lived among Jews, who would walk around taxing other Jewish people 
to give the money to people that would kill and oppress them. Many times what Rome would do when they conquered a city is they would go in and take 10 to 12 families and they would, for a mile, walking into the road, into the city, they would crucify these people. And this was paid for by taxing these people. Ultimately, what this is, for us to bring it into this context, is your next-door neighbor robs from you to pay Al-Qaeda to kill your friends and your neighbors and put those deaths on display. How much anger would you have for that person? How much anger do you have when you see someone, an, an American citizen who is connected with terrorism, who's, who's funding and giving we all get really uptight at that. That's a tax collector. In the 2012 context, that's a tax collector. And that's the people in our story. So we have this wretched, wretched tax collector and this religious Pharisee in this story that Jesus is telling to people who trust in themselves. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Man, my heart breaks there. My heart breaks because I see myself. And I see you. And because I know the end of the story. Thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. Then he starts listing his religious activities. I fast twice a week. I give of all the tithes that I get. But the tax collector... The wretched car wreck of a man. Ben Summers. Standing far off. Would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's Jesus at the end of this short quick little parable to people who trust in themselves. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, himself will be exalted. Do you see why this is so dangerous? The wretched, gross, obviously disgusting apart from God tax collector is fully repentant and justified. That word justified means you have right standing before God. You get to go to the party. The Pharisee, the religious guy, the one who ties, the one who gives of all he's got, the one who is praying, the one who's doing all this religious activity is not justified. Because when we see the car accident, we run and we 
dial 911 as quick as we can. We engage all that we can to save this life. But the one who has no clue that it's even happening is just happily driving their car to death. And I'm so fearful that that's where we find ourselves. And honestly, I sat over there and began to cry at Rebecca's story because I was Rebecca and I grew up there and I grew up in this little church and I was the good little boy. And I was the youth pastor to a bunch of good little boys and girls. We send our, my, I send my kids off to, to the Christian school and I teach them stuff and, and I, I preach to them to be the good little boy, the good little girl. But in the prodigal son, the older brother is outside of the love of God. He's outside. He's outside of the party. In this story, the tax collector, the wretched, gross man, is justified. The religious guy is not. Get on your face and weep before the Lord that this is not you. But I want to leave us with the beauty of the second half of the gospel. What are we to do? It's transition to talk about repentance. If, if repentance is this thing that we're after, if, if this tax collector was beating his breast in repentance and the Pharisee was, was puffing up his chest in pride, how do we combat that? What do we do? Here's the, the huge transition for us. Acts 1.18 says, 11.18 says this, When they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I could get into the, I don't have time to get into the context of Acts 11. I just want to zero in on this last phrase here. God has granted the repentance that leads to life. First of all, God grants it. God grants it. It's a grace that isn't born in you. We have to beg God to lead us to repentance. This is the secret to not be outside of the, of the party, to not be the one not going home justified. God, grant us this repentance. And repentance is a Greek word, metanoeo, which simply means a change in the essence of our mind. We've seen so many times, we think repentance is walking this way and turning 180 degrees and walking that way. That sort of gets to it. But ultimately, what this word means, what Jesus is communicating to us with repentance, is there is an essential, an essence change to the way that we think, to our minds. It's not a changing of the mind in our sense. Like, I was going to wear a blue shirt, and I changed my mind to wear a red shirt. That's, that's not what I'm talking about in change of a mind. I mean, actual mind change. We think one way, and the next day we think a completely different way. The way it happens, the structure of it is changed. That's repentance. You don't have the power to repent inside of you. You don't have the power to change the makeup, 
the, the actual neutrons and things that are going on in your brain. You don't have the power to change them. God does. God grants this change of mind. And then the last phrase of that verse that leads to life. The doorway to beautiful, perfect, life-giving relationship to a holy and wonderful God is repentance. We have to see that. We have to know that because the, the first part of this message is all about the danger of not understanding this, not coming to grips with this. It's so important. In Mark 1.15, Jesus calls his first disciples. And what does he call them to? Repent. The first thing, when Jesus comes, Jesus comes up to Matthew and says, repent and follow me. He doesn't say anything else. He doesn't say, study my life. He doesn't say, pray a lot. He doesn't say, read the ancient text. He doesn't say any of that. He says, repent and follow me. And then when he sends his disciples out a few chapters later, Mark 6, he says to them, I want you to go out and I want you to preach to people to repent. He doesn't say, I want you to preach to people to to read scripture more, to pray more. He calls them to repent. This is the thing that Jesus is calling us to. Repent. So what does it mean to repent? I want to leave us with a few quotes that bring beautiful ideas to what this means and what, what, what's happening here. Because of the ma- fact of the matter is this. <clears throat> Here's an illustration about the sin that's within us. I just coughed, and I have this deal going on inside of me. I had it for like a week and a half. And actually, I have it all the time. I have this, these allergies in life. No matter what's going on. It happens really bad in the spring and really bad in the fall, but the rest of life, it's, it's always there. And um, most of the time after church is over, I get done preaching, I walk and say something to Jan, and you know what she hands me? A piece of gum. Because this disease that I have inside of me manifests itself with this dripping that goes on in the back of my throat like 24-7. And if you get close to me, unaided, it stinks. I have really bad breath all the time. Like right now, if I got up in your face, you'd be like, stop it. (laughs) And so what I do is in order to engage you, for you to not think I'm really nasty, what has he been eating sort of nasty? Mints and gum are are really good friends of mine. And if you've ever prayed, like, like after the service, we go back there and I'll be back there and, and engage you in prayer or whatever. Chances are that's before I've gotten a chance to put gum in my mouth. So you're going to have to experience the wretchedness and the nastiness. But the thing is, no matter what I do, how long I brush my teeth, no matter how long, how often I brush my teeth, no matter how much gum I have, everything is a cover to what's inside of me. I've got this disease that's happening inside of me. And when I wake up in the mornings, I'm just, with this cold now, I'm just hacking. And I I can't get rid of it. There's no pill that I can take to get rid of it. 
And that's what's going on inside of our lives. And that's what religion is about. It's for us putting stuff on the exterior of ourselves, putting gum on ourselves so that you don't know my own wretchedness. But it's there. And we get really good at church to cover up our own sin and grossness. Religious people spend a lifetime trying to figure out ways where you don't get to see my nasty sin. But who are you kidding? Hide it from me. I don't care. It doesn't matter. God is the judge, and he knows. But what is this repentance that leads to life? Keller says this. In the gospel, the point of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. The point of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of your union with Christ. It's really just an exposition of the last phrase we read in Acts eleven eighteen: Repentance leads to life. And Rebecca's story is a beautiful example of it. 21, 22 years, whatever it was, of life spent running around putting gum on her disease. And God breaks free from that and brings her into beautiful and intimate relationship with him. Comparison is over. Only full knowledge of the depth of her sin. John Calvin lived hundreds of years ago. He said, true conversion of our life to God, proceeding from a serious fear of God and consisting of mortification of the flesh. That's killing the flesh, killing our own sinful desires and of the old man and the vivification of the spirit. Dying to self and being made alive by the Spirit. That is repentance that leads to life. Charles Spurgeon says, Repentance is the act of salvation of the soul, the germ which contains all the essentials of salvation and secures them to us and prepares us for them. Repentance, the change of mind that God grants to us is the seed that God plants deep into your heart and into your soul that brings forth this light and this life. Repentance leads to life. <clears throat> and here is the beautiful. A.W. Pink says this. Repentance is not simply turning over a new leaf and vowing that I will mend my ways. Man, that's a danger. That's a danger for us this morning. I'm screaming and jumping up and down and hollering about repentance. And that's a danger that we're going to repent in our own strength. That you're going to think it's something that you can do. You can't. Stop trying. Be like the tax collector. God, have mercy on me. People are going to think you're weird. 
Repentance is not simply turning over a new leaf and vowing that I will mend my ways. Rather, it is a setting to my seal that God is true when he declares that I am without strength, that I, in myself, my case is hopeless, that I'm no more capable of doing better than I am of creating a new world. You hear that? You are no more capable of defeating your sin than you are of creating a new world. It's God's job. Remember last week, Bruce Summers stood up here, Ben's dad, and he said, God finally convinced me that this was not my battle, it was his. Your repentance is not your battle, it's God's. You are no more capable of doing better. You are no more capable of changing the essence of your mind than you are of saying, let there be light. Not until this is believed on the authority of God's word shall I return to Christ and welcome him, not as helper, but as savior. For real. Flip over to Psalm 51. And I want you to read Psalm 51 about as many times as you can this week. But I want to end with Psalm 51, 17. Psalm 51, if you don't know, David has just committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband so that he can have her and raise their child together and they can be married. So he's committed adultery and killed the guy. And somebody has come to him and confronted him and said, that's sin, you are wretched. And here's David's response. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God are not following a list of rules. The sacrifices of God are not hiding your wretchedness from people. Are not showing up every Sunday in church. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These things God will not despise. Oh, that God would break us. Leave us empty. And fill us with himself. Let's pray. Exclaim the beauty of this. God, we thank you that you have persevered your scripture, that you have told these beautiful stories, these parables we have studied, this life of David, this life of Rebecca, that you have placed your grace in the hearts and lives of people like Ben and people like David and people like Rebecca and people like tax collectors. And you have placed your grace on display in their lives so that we might see the beauty of your grace, Father. And that grace might explode in our hearts and lead us to a life filled with repentance, God. Filled with a changing of our hearts and of our minds and set our minds focused on following you, rooted in the love that you've given to us, not in any opportunity for us that we might earn anything from you, God. God, I thank you for Jesus Christ and his illuminating presence in our lives.
It shows us our sin, God. Draw us in to your presence. Allow us to remain there this morning as we respond to what you've spoken to us, God. Break us of our religiousness, God. Even now, God, this message is for all of us. Break us, God. Show us how completely and utterly dependent we are upon you, God. Teach us what it means to surrender. God, we give ourselves to you and we give this time to you. It's in Christ's name.